Today's reading is from Matthew, chapter 20, verses 29 through 34. As Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. Two blind men were sitting by the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was going by, they shouted, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. The crowd rebuked them and told them to be quiet. But they shouted all the louder, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. Jesus stopped and called them. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. Lord, they answered, we want our sight. Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes. Immediately, they received their sight and followed him. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. Have you ever suffered with someone or had someone suffer with you? Uh, There's two twins I've been reading about, uh, Angela and Alina Gatt. They live in Victoria, Australia. And they're one of many twins that experience what is called twin-to-twin syndrome. And that happens when uh, they don't understand it, but one twin feels something physically or emotionally, and the other twin acutely feels it as well. There's a myriad of stories between these uh, two sisters, uh, but a couple that caught my attention is early on in their life, one twin was having a tonsillectomy, and the other twin, who was not there at all, the moment uh, that the tonsil was cut, felt a sharp pain in her throat and cried out. Uh, The one twin, another story, uh, was not married, was not sexually active, and yet started experiencing what felt like morning sickness, and she called her married sister and said, you should take a pregnancy test. And sure enough, she was pregnant. Another story, uh, one sister was in Paris, the other back in Australia, and uh, the one in Paris was the clumsy one and uh, was going down some stairs and fell and really injured her knee. At that exact moment, the twin in Australia felt really acute pain in her knee, called her sister and said, what did you do this time? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever suffered with someone? Had someone suffer with you? What would that be like to have someone really experience the pain that we experience emotionally, physically, be with us in that pain? We're in a series called The Emotions of God. We're we're ramping up towards the end here. It's designed around a book by biblical scholar Dr. David Lamb called The Emotions of God. And we'll have a special opportunity next week to interact with David Lamb. Uh, He is not going to be here physically, but he will be here through the marvels of technology. So if you've seen these before, we've done these in the past, he'll be on a big screen on stage here, and he will be live, both services. And you'll have an opportunity to ask him some questions. I will ask him some questions and we'll interact and have a conversation about the emotions of God. Sound good? So if you haven't picked up the book, it's our big read. I think there's a couple copies left out there. You're not going to find it anywhere cheaper. Uh, Grab a copy if you bought one in the past and haven't been reading it. You got one week, one week to read it and catch up and come with good questions. So that'll be exciting. We are emotional beings. Uh, we, we are very emotional beings, and God is a very emotional being. We don't want you to be less emotional. That's not the purpose of this series, but we want you to be more emotional. But God shows us how to get emotional. And today we're going to look at the compassion of God, the compassion of God. The word compassion comes from a family of words in the English language and other languages that has to do with feeling for 
or feeling with someone. Uh, in, the, uh, in the Hebrew language, there's four Hebrew words that are commonly translated compassion. In the Greek language, in our Bibles, there's 10 that commonly get translated compassion. Let's try to parse back and pull back the words a little bit and better understand what this word compassion means. This is kind of how I think about it. Uh, the word pity comes from this family. Uh, the word pity is when we feel with or for someone from afar. They're distanced from us. And we're often feeling in a downward trajectory for whatever reason. Maybe we're prideful, maybe we're at a higher social class, uh, but we pass by someone maybe and we like, oh. And we do have feeling for them, but we're often kind of looking down at them. That's why the word can have negative connotations. Uh, you're pitiful, for instance. Not always, but sometimes. So then we have the word uh, sympathy. Uh, sympathy cards, all those kind of things. So sympathy is when we're feeling with or for someone, but it's also from afar. Maybe it's an article we read in the paper. Maybe it's an old friend from high school that we haven't talked to in a long time. We hear something. We have sympathy, but we're not looking down at them necessarily. We're looking horizontally. We're in relationship maybe with them in some way. Maybe we've experienced something of what they experienced, but it's still distanced, and it's from afar. Then we have the word empathy. Empathy, feeling with or for someone, same family of words, but now we're in closer proximity. Maybe we're in closer proximity because we've been through exactly what that person's been through, or maybe we're in closer proximity because we know them really well. They're a close friend or family member or spouse or child. That would be empathy. Then we have our word compassion. And our word compassion is empathy in action. Empathy doesn't denote any action. You don't have to do anything with it. And it's a beautiful emotion. You're feeling it genuinely, internally. But compassion, you take that emotion and you do something about it. Compassion always has action attached. You're acting on your empathy. I love, if you hear me preach often, you know this already, but I love words. I love etymology. I think it's fascinating now that we're down the line in the English language to go back and see where we got these words from. Often it's weird and doesn't make sense. With compassion, I love the etymology. I think it's a perfect definition of the word. It comes from the Latin. So think of the word compassion. It's got com, C-O-M, and then passion. The word passion in Latin means to suffer. Whenever you see the word calm attached to a word, it means with. So compassion means to suffer with. To suffer with. Have you ever suffered with someone? Or had someone suffer with you? Uh, God is very much a God of compassion. Uh, we've looked often in the Old Testament throughout this series at Exodus 33 and 34. And if you're new, we'll catch you up quickly. That's that little story. Moses, friend of God, wants to know God even more, which happens when we get to know God. He longs for even more. He says, God, let me see your face. And God says, Moses, if you see my face, you will not live. And he's like, okay, plan B then. I will hide in the cleft of the rock. And God says, I will pass by behind you. And you'll survive, and that's about as close as we can get right now. And Moses is like, let's do it. So Moses hides in the cleft of the rock, and God passes behind him, and we have this verse 
of what God is saying, how God is proclaiming and revealing, and he passed in front of Moses proclaiming the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh. Now look at this description, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. When God chooses to reveal character, the first word God uses is You following along here? We can do it. It can be interactive. It can be interactive. Is the word what? Compassion. Compassion. If I ask you to tell me about yourself and use some descriptive words, what word might you use first? Well, God would use the word compassion. This word, the root in the Hebrew, is the same word for the word womb, which is telling on, on numerous fronts. One, compassion is always a very deeply internal feeling. But secondly, it has a maternal quality. God is not gendered. God's not male or female. God is both. And so throughout the Old Testament, God presents often as a mother caring for her children. And that is very much the idea of compassion, this deep care and concern for the children of Israel. We see God's compassion on full display, even as they wander and misbehave. If you know the story of the Old Testament, that happens all the time, just like with me, just like with you. It's God's compassion that draws God back into relationship, like a maternal quality. I can't let go of them. I feel for them. I have to take care of them because they were in my womb at one point. That's the idea. Uh, we've said throughout the series, what does God look like? We all want to know, and we, we, we reply, God looks like Jesus. I'm not being kind of snarky. That's true. Jesus is the fullest revelation of God. Jesus is God with flesh on. So Jesus often, in the four eyewitness accounts, the gospel accounts, is presented as compassionate. Matthew, in particular, and that's the passage that Ron read, Matthew, in particular, highlights the compassion of Jesus. Here's a couple of different uh, examples of that. The last one I'll read was the last verse that Ron read. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. Watch how the internal experience leads to external action. They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. I do not want to send them away hungry or they may collapse on the way. And then finally, the last verse of the story that we heard, Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes. Immediately, they received their sight and followed him. As I said, there's 10 Greek words that often get translated as compassion. Uh, this one Greek word here in all these instances in our story is this word. Do you, guys, you want to try to pronounce that? <laughs> Holy cow. Well, hard pass on that. It means to be moved inwardly. The Greeks, the folks in the ancient Near East, we say our emotions are carried in our heart. They would say their gut. They feel it in their gut. And that's really what the word means, to be moved. Literally, the definition of this word is to be moved in your bowels. So the next time you're in the bathroom and you're in there for a while and somebody's knocking, you say, I'm working on my compassion in here. Just 
little church bathroom joke. Like, I saw some of you roll your eyes at me. The, I, I, uh, the story that Ron read earlier, it's a short, succinct little story of Jesus' compassion. And I want you, I love, I love to kind of imagine these stories. If you feel comfortable closing your eyes and trying to picture the scene, I think it's beautiful to try to be there and smell the smells and hear the sounds. We're told Jesus is kind of at, he's at the rock star stage, uh, large crowds, he's moving people with his words, he's healing people. There's a lot of people there consuming Uh, He hasn't yet raised the bar. And so it's a chaotic scene, lots of noise, dusty roads. It's smelly. It's the ancient Near East in the first century. And Jesus' disciples around him, they're probably full of energy and excitement of this new movement. And they're walking, and Jesus is surrounded by people that want something from him that much have been emotionally daunting. And all of a sudden, uh, he hears uh, two blind beggars. You wouldn't see them because they're seated, and Jesus is walking in this crowd, and they shout out, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. And the crowd that is with Jesus, because they're blind beggars, and if you had kind of a, a social ladder in the first century, the blind beggars would have been down here by anybody's measure. The Jewish people would have thought it's their fault. They're blind because they sinned. They would have been considered unclean to be interacted with, certainly to be touched. But Jesus stops, right? Jesus hears them. The heart of God is tuned to people like that, people like me, people like you. If you're in the throes of sorrow and suffering, Jesus' heart is tuned to you. And it's ironic, isn't it, that at this point, probably no one in the crowd, including the disciples, even we see this later, Jesus' ministry had any real clue who he was. They didn't really get it. But these two blind beggars got it. They used a messianic title. They knew who he was, <laughs> the irony. And they asked Jesus to have compassion. The word mercy and compassion are almost interchangeable in the scriptures. They said, Jesus, have compassion. Feel for us, Jesus. Do you see us over here? Feel for us. We didn't do this to ourselves. Do something about it. That's what the word means. Don't just stay at a distance and have empathy, Jesus. If you are who you say you are, come here and do something. Well, the crowd tells them to shut up. Just shut, just shut, don't bother, Jesus. Scum. That's kind of what they were saying. Jesus stops and he parts the crowd and he walks to them and he would have probably gotten down, right, at their level. And then he asks them this question, what do you want me to do for you? Isn't that a great question? Jesus asked you today, what what would your answer be? Ponder that. What do you want me to do for you? And they're like, duh. (laughs) I mean, mean, we're we're blind. (laughs) We'd love to see. And then compassion is always up close and personal, often involving touch. And Jesus did what would have made him unclean in the first century Jewish world, and he reached out and he touched their eyes. He had compassion on them, and he touched their eyes and were told immediately they could see. And then I love the last line of the verse, and they followed him. And they followed him. They weren't there just to get. Jesus, when we collide with Jesus, truly we are changed. This prayer, and it really was a prayer they cried out, Jesus, have mercy on me. Matthew uses it four times in his gospel. Pay attention to things that are repeated. Earlier on, 
And I think it's chapter 9, there's two other blind beggars that cry out this prayer. Later, a Canaanite woman cries out this prayer to Jesus to heal her demon-possessed daughter. Chapter 15, a man approaches Jesus to heal his demon-possessed son, all repeating the same prayer. In the whole group of first-century ragamuffins, they must have been sharing that prayer. It works. Pray that prayer. It gets his attention. And it did. If you don't know what to pray today, that's a heck of a prayer. Lord Jesus, have mercy. Have compassion on me. We'll return to that prayer a little bit later. I shared a a story or a a little snippet of a story a few weeks ago in the sadness message about a philosopher named Nicholas Wolterstorff, a really prominent philosopher from Yale, follower of Jesus. And I shared how his son uh, tragically lost his life in an accident in early 20s. And Nicholas is a follower of Jesus. is a philosopher who wrote about these things theoretically, had to live them and figure out his way through them. And he began to lament, and he wrote his journals. He was wrestling with God over his boy, and he's published those journals in a little book called Lament for a Son, which is so excellent. If you're, if you're sad today, if you're sorrowful, it's a really beautiful uh, little book. This is my favorite quote from that book. This was the breakthrough moment for Nicholas in his wrestling with God. It says, God is not only the God of the sufferers, but the God who suffers. It is said of God that no one can behold his face and live. I always thought this meant that no one could see his splendor and live. A friend said perhaps it meant that no one could see his sorrow and live. Or perhaps his sorrow is his splendor. Instead of explaining our suffering, God shares it. Here's what I want you to get today. God shares our suffering. God suffers with us so that we can suffer with others. God suffers with us so that we can suffer with others. So what? That's what we always say, so what? So what does that mean for us today? How do we live this out? One, a couple observations. One, you and I were made, literally made for compassion. Uh, There's a a neuroscientist, his friends call him Rama from University of California, Berkeley, And he studies uh, uh, mirror neurons. We all have neurons in us, and there's a chunk of neurons that activate when you're in physical pain or you're in emotional pain. They light up. But he's discovered we have these mirror neurons. They're another family of neurons that when we see someone else in emotional pain, they light up and they activate. (laughs) We're literally made for this stuff. We're made for compassion. We're made to feel for and with others. I did a little research on, on compassion. I found that it's surprisingly good for us. That's probably not surprising at all. Uh, it reduces prejudice and racism. It's good for your marriage. It reduces bullying. It produces heroic acts, uh, reduces inequality, creates better bosses, makes for better doctors. Research says that when we feel compassion, our blood pressure lowers and our heart rate lowers. Our bodies produce that feel-good hormone, oxytocin, and the centers of our brain, the pleasure centers, begin to light up like a Christmas tree. We're made for compassion. Another observation is that understanding that God suffers with us so that we can suffer with others puts suffering in a new context. 
Paul says it this way to the church at Corinth. It says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our trouble so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. When we go through suffering as followers of Jesus, understanding that we have a God who suffers with us, we begin to account for our suffering in a different way. Hopefully you lament it. Hopefully you're sad about it. That was a couple weeks ago. Hopefully you're doing that in a healthy way. But hopefully you begin to see it as well as a school or a gymnasium to build your compassion, to equip you to be uniquely compassionate to others who go through the same thing. That's what Paul's saying. I think we know this in our lives. If you've been around here for a while, you know that I have heart disease and I almost had a heart attack about five years ago. It was a pretty traumatic experience. God was faithful. I'm healthy today. Had a couple stints put in there. I'm still hiking mountains, praise God, all that stuff. Uh, But I have a unique uh, sense of compassion towards those who go through things like that. I had a pastor friend link me up with another pastor friend that I knew in the area, younger guy, really similar set of circumstances, had a lot of pain, and it took him to the ER, and he had major blocks, and he was rushed into surgery, it had stents, and so he called me, and he was a hot mess, and he was, and I was too when I went through it, and he was talking about feeling scared, and feeling shame, and feeling all kind of things that you do, and I was able to uniquely, uniquely minister to him. I had absolute compassion because I had been there in the same thing. I had felt it. And even on the phone call with him, I was suffering with him. I could feel with him. What can I do? How can I help you? These are the resources. This is the diet I started to do. These are the exercises. This is what you're going to experience. My compassion was uniquely activated. What are you going through right now? Or what have you gone through? You should, you should lament it. You should take it to God. You should pound on God's chest, all that kind of stuff. But also as a follower of Jesus, we begin to understand this. We see that God is also equipping us. There's good in it because you can uniquely come around someone who's going through the same things and give them hope and tell them you've been there before and that God is faithful and good and true. Don't say that the first time. That's annoying. <laughs> Sit with them, right? Be patient. Build a relationship with them. But that's the idea that it puts it in a different uh, context. Uh, another observation is compassion is, I think, our antidote to othering. Maybe you haven't heard that term before. It's a popular term. It means uh, when we separate ourselves from someone because they look differently or think differently or act differently or, God forbid, they vote differently. So we other them. <laughs> And we are uniquely good at this as Americans. They just did this massive survey of 28 countries and found that America, I think we were one or two of the most divided countries on earth. And sadly, that madness has seeped into our churches. And it's of the devil. It's ridiculous. But that's othering. How do we counteract that? How do we get around that? Well, compassion. It is impossible to be truly compassionate to someone and other them. You can't do it. To be compassionate, you have to step into someone else's skin. You have to be proximate. You have to really understand. You have to care, and you're physically doing something to alleviate their pain. So if we're practicing compassion as God's people, what we're called to do, then it will be an antidote to othering. 
It will take care of it. I told you that I'm going to try to quote Frederick Beekner as much as I can, so maybe you don't know who that is. He's my favorite author. He passed away this year. And uh, here's a great Beekner quote on compassion. It says, compassion is the sometimes fatal capacity for feeling what it's like to live inside someone else's skin. It is the knowledge that there can never really be any peace and joy for me until there is peace and joy finally for you too. Isn't that great? Hollywood gets this. Hollywood gets the, the, the whole body swap thing. I, mean, I, I did a deep dive. I lost like an hour of my life Googling body swap movies. And there's a lot of them. There's more than I thought. Uh, Freaky Friday, have you seen that? 13 going on 30, 17 again, Big with Tom Hanks. Remember that one movie? Soul, uh, all the Jumanji movies. And then do you remember Face Off with John Travolta and Nick Cage? They switched faces, which is just disturbing. So that has nothing to do with compassion, but I just thought I'd throw that in there. I, uh, our family, I don't think we watch any reality shows, but when they when it was first a thing, I'm old, like years and years ago, I, this is really embarrassing. I don't even know if I should tell you guys. This is, you'll, you'll judge me, but I got sucked into this reality show called Wife Swap. <laughs> this is just embarrassing. I'm sorry. I repent as your pastor. Uh, it was on ABC, and it was fascinating. They would, it was kind of sociological studies, and they would take, for instance, like uh, a CEO mom who lived in a brownstone in Manhattan, and, and she'd switch lives with like a homeschool mom from Mississippi, and they would just chart it out. They'd just totally switch lives. And it was funny and weird and odd. I should not have wasted any of my life watching it, for the record. But since I did, I did glean some things from it. It, it was, at the end, inevitably, there was compassion, right? There wasn't the othering. so easy to other when you know nothing. But the swap, right, literally, as Beekner said, living in someone else's skin, like, that is the antidote to othering. You can't do that and other someone else. It's just impossible. How do we cultivate that? Because I think the church, myself, with all due respect to you, the church, our muscles, our compassion muscles are atrophied, I think. How do we even cultivate that? Well, one practical thing, I've tried this with our girls a little bit. I'm a work in progress on it. But I think we've gotten in a really bad habit, especially when we encounter people that we tend to other or from the other group or camp. We tell the worst possible story about them. We've just gotten into this. Uh, it's bad faith. So how about switching that? How about as, as followers of Jesus who are supposed to be hopeful and think the best, we begin to tell the best possible story about people or to have good faith about them? Uh, think when you're, uh, this is, you could practice it on your way home. I hope this doesn't happen to you, but it happens in Portland a good bit to me where you're on the road and uh, some, some Yahoo cuts you off. And not only do they cut you off, but they give you the bird like it's your fault. Now, I'll be honest, as your pastor, I always am, I get angry most of those times. And I rev my car, I get really close, sometimes I'll pull up beside them, just give them this look, which does nothing because I drive a Prius, and they just <laughs> laugh at me. It's just I can't catch up with them, and they're just like, yeah, nice Prius, buddy. <laughs> and that's not a good example to our girls. So I've tried to like think, I've even done this with them before, that'll happen, and you've got to stop, <laughs> come Lord Jesus, you know, pray the Jesus prayer. And, uh, and then you begin to tell a better story. You ask questions. Huh, wonder what's going on with them. I don't know them. I wonder if they just got a bad diagnosis. 
or they lost their job, or someone broke their heart. Or I wonder how they grew up, the wounds they're carrying, hurt people hurt people, right? You begin to tell the, it's not excusing behavior, but you get on the other side of it and you begin to try to get into their skin. I wonder what their life is like. And it's amazing, just stepping into this a little bit, compassion begins to build and it becomes an antidote and a barrier towards othering. As Brene Brown says, I, I think I agree with her. She says, most people are just trying to do the best they can. Most people are just trying to do the best they can. I think as followers of Jesus, we should say amen to that. We should get on the other side of othering and practice compassion. You may have seen uh, Pastor Tim Keller passed away this last week. You may not know who he is, and that's okay. He's a pretty public figure within Christianity. Uh, I think that Tim Keller, probably more than any man or woman, has shaped my generation and the generation after me of, of pastors and preachers more than any single figure. I don't know. Maybe there's a few others, but he's way up there. Uh, he planted a church, Redeemer Presbyterian, in the heart of Manhattan. Uh, he's brilliant. His church, even though he's kind of a nerdy, boring dude, his church reached all these young people, these Wall Street people, these intellectuals, and just kind of grew. And I think all the rest of us were like, how is he doing that? And uh, he didn't even start writing books till he was like in his early 50s. And he had a bunch of New York Times bestsellers on and on and on. So when he passed the pancreatic cancer, I was grieved. I really was. I felt uh, sadness. And, uh, and then I began to collect. I'm still in the process of collecting. It seems like every major periodical that I could find, someone wrote a tribute to Tim Keller, from New York Times to The Atlantic, on and on. I'm just kind of collecting them and reading them. And what didn't shock me is person after person saying he was brilliant. Uh, he gave new hope for the church and reaching the next generation, on and on and on. He loved Jesus. None of that was a surprise. But what was a delight as I read these articles, some of them very, very personal, said that Tim Keller was incredibly kind and compassionate. The word winsome again and again. And what was really delightful, a lot of these were written by people who you might consider to be his opponents. Atheists, agnostics, people in other theological camps that said again and again and again to where it's not anecdotal, it was a practice of Tim, he would reach out to people who wrote articles saying his book was horrible or what he thought was it. And he'd be like, hey, this is Tim Keller. And they'd always be like, what? <laughs> I just want to understand. Talk to me. Tell me about your life. Tell me. And they said legitimately he wanted to understand. And they said they just found themselves opening up to him. And it developed a friendship where to a person they said he would call later and be like, hey, how's your sister doing who had cancer? How's this? And I'm just like, oh. And I think that was my really deep grief. Are we going to miss Tim's intellect? We can read his books. We can listen to his sermons. They're a legacy for the church. But we need more followers of Jesus like that. Amen? Amen. 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 His compassion muscles were not atrophied. <laughs> he actually did something about the things he wrote, the things he felt deep in him, his internal experiences turned into external actions. And more than anything, these people talked, many of them not Christians who are writing these, said what my relationship with Tim did was it made me more interested in his Jesus. How about that? And that's the deal. That's what compassion does. And in a world that a lot of people increasingly think that we're foolish and we're crazy and what we believe and this and that, compassion has to begin to take root again in the church. Paul says to the church of Colossae, this ragtag first century church, to clothe themselves 
with compassion. And if you read the letters in the New Testament, the church, like our church, was a hot mess. They got a lot of things wrong. They messed up. They were imperfect. But man, they nailed compassion. They got it. And I would argue it, it changed the world. The, the followers of Jesus in the first century, um, pl- plagues would come through and take out like a third of the Roman Empire. And there's story after story of followers of Jesus, and plagues would take root in these cities because they were walled in, they were tightly compressed, and the virus would spread in those cities. The rich people, the elite, would leave those cities, a lot of times leaving their loved ones and their children to die alone. Followers of Jesus would enter the cities to care for them, to put their own lives at risk to show them that they were loved, that they mattered. Uh, In the first century, if you didn't want your child, a lot of times these were female babies, they would literally take their children to these, these trash heaps and these dumps and just leave them there to die or to get killed by animals. Followers of Jesus would go get the babies, bring them into their own house and raise them. When it became too many babies, they started what we would call orphanages. Followers of Jesus uh, created what we would call hospitals today. There was never hospitals or places to care for people's bodies until followers of Jesus started them. If you look at any hospital sign today, probably somewhere you'll see a cross. That's the legacy of followers of Jesus saying, not only your souls matter, but your bodies matter. How do we care for you? Followers of Jesus start what we'd we'd call hostels or hotels or motels. Nobody was opening their homes to first century people. It was dangerous. Followers of Jesus would build Jesus rooms onto their house so that any traveler that came and knocked, there was space for them to come on in, experience the hospitality of Jesus. Uh, followers of Jesus believed deeply in education. I would put forth to you that any major university of historical note in the world was, fo- was started by a follower of Jesus. They may not be there today, but they were started by a follower of Jesus. Followers of Jesus fed the poor and clothed the unclothed. We see a lot of this going on still today. We see the legacy. Think of organizations like World Relief, World Vision, Food for the Poor, Food for the Hungry, Mercy Ships, Mercy Corps, Samaritan's Purse, Catholic Relief Services, and of course, Compassion International. Compassion changed the world once. It can change the world again. Can I get an amen? I have a friend uh, who told me a story. He was in Africa. He's a missionary. He's on furlough. He came back, and he was out hiking in the hills, and he encountered a farmer. And he said this farmer was very poor, and uh, he began to just walk with him and talk with him as best uh, his language would allow. And he glanced down at the farmer's shoes. He said, of, of, maybe you wouldn't even call them shoes, what was left of them. The heels were barely attached, the soles that were flapping, all of his toes were exposed, and he kind of just, yeah. and then he said, he said he didn't hear it audibly, he felt deeply within him, the Spirit of God said, give the man your shoes. And he's like, I, I didn't quite hear you right, Lord, I'm, just, I'm having a bad, bad connection. <laughs> he said, he shared honestly, he said, I just got back to the States and, and saved up and gotten these hikers that I loved, just loved these hikers, and I was breaking them in. He's like, you got to be kidding me, God. <laughs> but he said, I follow King Jesus. And he goes, I didn't do it with joy, but I did it obediently. <laughs> and I took off my shoes, and he didn't understand at first. And I had to, like, put his feet in them. They were a little big. And then I took his shoes. 
And I put my feet in them as best I could. They were way too small. And we started to hike together again. See, that's compassion. He could have pitied him, like, ugh, those shoes feel so bad for you. Could have even had sympathy. Like, I don't, I don't know who you are. I'm sorry you have shoes like that. Could have had true empathy. He's walking with this man, hearing his story. But he had more than that. He had compassion. I mean, Jesus' best story on compassion is the Good Samaritan. You may know it, you may not. And Jesus asked the religious leaders that day, who was the one who had compassion? Who was the neighbor? And they had to reluctantly, they couldn't even name him. They just said, called him the man because he was the Samaritan in the story. And the priest and the Levite, did they have empathy? Did they have sympathy? Of course. Of course they did. But they probably didn't have any life experience because they were high up on the scale and they looked down on the man. But the Samaritan also, from a lower strata of society, had true compassion. That compassion drove him to bandage the man with his hands, put him on his animal, take him to the hospital and pay his bill. That is compassion. God suffers with us so that we, his people, those of us who follow Jesus, can suffer with others. As we prepare for uh, the table, I was thinking, uh, I always try to come back to Jesus at the end of these messages. That's why it's good that we do the table. We should always end with Jesus. And I was thinking Jesus is the embodiment of God's compassion. See, God could have stayed at a distance and pitied us. God could have had empathy and sympathy that kept God feeling for us and with us from a distance. But we have a God whose first named quality is compassion. Because our God did not stay at a distance, put on flesh for me and for you. And Jesus doesn't just share my suffering and share your suffering. Jesus bears it. Jesus bears it, his body. And that's what we remember as we come to the table. To prep our hearts uh, for the table, uh, I want to take us through what, what has been co- known as the Jesus prayer. And uh, I, the older I get and the more stuff I go through, I'll just confess that I think the worst, I, I become a worse prayer. Uh, I don't know what to say a lot of times, to be honest. And I, I groan and moan a lot of times in my prayer life, not having the right words. Maybe you're like me, maybe not. Uh, but I think the Jesus prayer is something I've come back to in my prayer life again and again. And I've probably prayed it over these last eight years more than any other prayer by far. And it's an ancient prayer. It comes from Matthew's gospel. Four times Matthew gives it to us. And a lot of Jesus followers, myself included, pray it as a breath prayer. And uh, you may do this right now or hear me do it and leave here and never want to do it again, and that's fine. Uh, But we're here to equip you to be apprentices of Jesus, and I hope that it will find a place in your life. I think it will be meaningful. Breath, in in Greek, the same word for breath is the word for spirit. And when we breathe, we're reminded that each breath is a gift from God. There'll come a moment for all of us, we won't have another one. Uh, But we do now. We do today. And that's a gift. So the breath prayer is you, you breathe in, kind of from your diaphragm, just... And you say, Lord Jesus... And then when you breathe out, have mercy on me. And you can add a sinner if you want. I don't need to be reminded because I'm so sinful. I don't have to add that. But you can add it if you want. Um, either way, whatever feels good with the cadence. Sometimes I do it for two minutes. Sometimes I do it for 20 minutes. Sometimes I do it for 30 seconds. Sometimes I do it once. God doesn't care. 
But for me, it centers me. It reminds me of the primal call on all of us of who is Lord, not me. And what really what we're crying out to God for is be compassionate on us. We need your compassion. We need you to be with us, God. And we need you to do something about it, whatever that looks like. And that's why I love it so much. So we're going to do this together. I'll, I'll lead you a couple times in it. And I hope you'll participate. And then I'll give us like a minute of quiet that you can do it yourself. And then we'll come to the table. You guys ready? Awesome. So, all right, here we go. You breathe in, Lord Jesus. Breathe out. Have mercy on me. Breathe in, Lord Jesus. Breathe out. Have mercy on me. I'll lead you one more time and I'll leave it to you. Breathe in, Lord Jesus. Breathe out. Have mercy on me. Thank you, God, that you're the God who who suffers with us. You're up close, you're personal, you're invested, you put on flesh. You're involved in my mess, you're involved in our messes deeply and intricately, so much so that you promise to get so far in that you will make it all well and right and good. And we just say, come, Lord Jesus, into that, into the messes of our heart and our lives and our world. We so desperately need your compassion. Help us to feel it today deep in our bones. Fill us with a grand sense of your compassion for us so that we can go forth as your people and embody compassion to those in our path. For your glory and for the sake of the world, we pray. Amen. 